Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. Again, God's word, Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us. So what do you want on your headstone? Sure, many today do not choose or cannot afford to be buried with a headstone, but if you did get a marble tombstone, what would you put on it? Well, it's natural to put your dates, your birth and death, and then there's those phrases like, in loving memory, always loved, never forgotten, in God's care, a woman of grace and dignity. Whatever else, though, that you might write on it, one thing for sure you would carve on the headstone is your name. Indeed, a tombstone without a name is kind of wrong. It's sad. Even unidentified soldiers get unknown. But an unnamed grave, a blank stone, can be a shame, a disgrace. And yet this is basically what our Lord does in this passage. And it turns out to be one of the highest honors. So Jesus just wrapped up his long monologue on the last days of the church age and the final day of the Lord. But now Mark gives us a peek at the calendar. It's two days before Passover and unleavened bread. Now, so far in the gospel, Mark hasn't really tied any part of Jesus' ministry to the calendar except for a few references to the Sabbath, no dates, seasons, or months have been given. And yet with this, Mark gets rather precise, for we know these exact, the exact dates of these feasts. Now, we don't know what year it is, but both of these were celebrated in the first month of Nisan, or Abib. Passover fell on the 14th day of the month, and unleavened bread began the very next day on the 15th. Then unleavened bread ran for seven days until the 21st. The two made up a complex eight-day feast, which, as you know, was one of the high and holy pilgrims of the Mosaic, or pilgrim festivals of the Mosaic Covenant. Remember, Passover commemorated the grand redemption of God of his people out of Egypt. On that first Passover, 
the destroyer passed through the land. And the Israelites were protected behind their blood-painted doors. Then early next morning, in haste, with no time to let the bread rise, the Israelites marched out of Egypt with unleavened bread. Passover was the new beginning for God's people. That Exodus salvation became the paradigm for the other great works of God for his people. Thus, throughout the centuries in the Old Testament, when Israel needed a fresh start, they often tied it to Passover. After that generation perished in the wilderness, Joshua crossed the Jordan and celebrated Passover. After dark seasons of gross apostasy, King Hezekiah and later Josiah both renewed the covenant and purified the temple at the Feast of Passover. Then in Ezra 6, when the second temple was finished after 70 years of exile, they celebrated the temple at Passover. New and great things happened for God's people at Passover. Therefore, by dating it to around Passover, Mark pulls in a masterful tapestry of Old Testament material to contextualize what our Lord is about to do. Namely, something big is about to go down. This date, though, is also like saying it's December 22nd at the mall. For preparations for Passover are in full swing, and thousands of pilgrims from all around the Roman world are cramming into the city of Jerusalem. Now, the best estimates put the normal population of Jerusalem around twenty to 25,000 people. But at Passover it could swell to over 150,000. Every house became an Airbnb. The streets were clogged with people, and you had 30-minute lines wherever you went. And with such a glut of people, the Roman police were on high alert. Shoot first, ask questions later. Indeed, this helps explain the anxiety of the priests and the scribes. As we've seen before, they are busy plotting the murder of our Savior. They've lost all patience with him. Jesus must go. But they have to arrest him and put him in the ground carefully. They can't make a scene. For remember that many in the crowds still favor Jesus. Some still support him. And so their plan, the priest's plan, must be stealthy, covert, and sneaky. As they say, we can't do it at the feast, lest we start a riot. And few things, there were few things that Rome hated more than a riot. You, if you rioted under Rome, the swift hammer of the army quickly flattened you on the anvil. Thus the priests and the scribes are protecting their own position doubly so. They're trying to keep favor with the people and with Rome, all as they murder Jesus on the down low. And just so that we don't miss the treachery, the word that Mark employs for stealth is literally deception. Their murder plot is glued together with nothing but selfish deception and lies. Moreover, they're not even very good at it. As you know from the rest of the story, Despite them saying, not at the feast, it's right in the middle of Passover that Jesus dies. 
The priests and the scribes succeed not because they're so sly, but because someone far greater and wiser is in control who allows them to murder Jesus. Nevertheless, this den of deceitful aristocrats is contrasted with another place. Not far from the temple halls is the quiet village of Bethany, which is on the backside of the Mount of Olives, and here we reconnect with Jesus. We find him enjoying some hospitality. Jesus is reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. Now, Simon was a very common name among the Jews at this time, and this Simon appears nowhere else in the New Testament that we can be certain of. So the only thing that we know about this guy was he was he a leper was he was a leper that is he at one point suffered the most serious ritual impurity of scale disease now presumably since Jesus healed scale disease during his ministry this Simon is healed he's cured and he's no longer impure or defiling and yet this leper's house leper's house creates quite the contrast with the priest. As the priests get ready for Passover, they are in a state of spotless ritual impurity. Most of them would likely confine themselves to the pure places <clears throat> excuse me, around the temple so they didn't accidentally get defiled. Meanwhile, though, Jesus is eating in a leper's house which was the proverbial place of quarantine and infectious impurity of the worst sort. Now, Simon being healed, it wasn't actually defiling, but still Mark creates this contrast. Two days before Passover, it's all about purity preparation. The priests sit in the sacred halls of holiness while Jesus reclines in a leper's house. Despite their ritual purity, the priests plot murder by deception. Clean on the outside, but nothing but wickedness within. Out in Bethany, though, where the doormat says, Welcome to the leper's house, inside is Jesus with a man made truly pure. Mark juxtaposes how the priests prepare for Passover and how our Lord is. And where they, and there's more getting ready, going on in Bethany. As as Mark lays out, the dinner party seems to be well on its way. Excuse me. Everyone is in their places. The appetizers are done, and the first course is about to be served. When all of a sudden, a woman comes in. Now, we can't tell for sure, but she does not seem to be an invited guest. The woman seems to barge in from the alleyway. But she's carrying an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Now, nard, or spike nard, is an essential oil that comes from the plants of the valerian family. It can be in crystallized form or liquid, and hers was liquid. And they use spike nard as perfume, for medicines, and other uses. In fact, the ancients considered it to have an aroma that was so mind-blowing in terms of it being pleasurable. This was a luxury par excellence. Thus, this woman either had to be rich or someone wealthy gave it to her. Next, she breaks the bottle and she pours it all over Jesus' head. She washes Jesus' hair in heavenly perfume. 
the whole room gets a smell of paradise as Jesus gets bathed in spikenard. The question is, though, what's the woman doing? What's the point of this? What's the significance of her act? We can see her actions, but we cannot tell what she's thinking. In fact, there are several possibilities. One, this could be just a luxury pleasure at the jo- a joyous feast, where hosts would sometimes give their guests perf- perfume to increase enjoyment. So it's just celebratory. Two, though, the language here of pouring oil on the head actually echoes the language of the high priest being anointed in Exodus 30, and it recalls a passage from Psalm 133, which says, Precious oil on the head, running down on the beard of Aaron. This woman could be anointing Jesus as priest, consecrating him for his labor. In fact, the normal language for anointing kings or the Messiah is completely avoided by Mark. He makes no clear play on Jesus being the anointed Messiah. Instead, he echoes the priestly anointing. Third, though, this pouring of fragrant oil on the body was also done to corpses. Proper and honorable burial practice covered the dead in spices and oils. The question is, though, which one is the woman doing? What are her intentions? And from verse 3, we can't be sure. Her actions remain ambiguous. We need some help to clarify. And on top of this, she broke the jar. Why this? We know that these jars had spouts and toppers. There was no need to break it. Thus, as readers, we cannot figure out what this woman is up to. And we're not the only ones. For some of the other guests watch the woman, and they're not happy. They don't know what she's doing, but they're mad at her. Now, Mark does not identify these ticked-off partygoers, but their language is strong. They say, why was this ointment wasted like this? They consider her act a complete waste. But it's actually stronger yet. Waste is actually the word for destruction, violent annihilation and ruin. Why did she destroy this ointment? Indeed, their concern is for the spikenard. They act like a crime was committed against the ointment. This woman victimized, murdered, and ruined the nard. And yet this this anger at the woman, by implication, sticks to Jesus as well. If spikenard on his head was destruction, how dare Jesus permit it? Jesus wrongly enjoyed the pleasure of the perfume. They speak of Jesus' head as if the woman poured the expensive liquid in the dirt. Their finger wagging includes Jesus as well. And they give the reason for why they deem this to be so destructive. For the ointment could have been sold and given to the poor. And this one little jar could have fetched 300 denarii. The woman destroyed a great deal of good alms. They justified their anger against the woman by almsgiving. Charity to the poor is far more important than Jesus' luxury. 
And by giving us a dollar amount, they undermine the criminal destruction of the woman in Jesus. Now, we know that a denarius, one of them, was basically a day wage at minimum wage. So at today's prices, this is roughly $120 a day for 300 days, which is a total of $36,000. This woman just poured thirty-six grand on Jesus' hair. This is extravagant. At $5 a meal, this would provide 7,200 meals for the poor down at the local soup kitchen. Her generosity is reckless squandering. It's excessive indulgence. The woman stole food from the poor in order to give Jesus a luxury bath. She's guilty of pilfering alms. And so these people keep scolding the woman. Rapid fire rebukes and slanders come at her from all sides. That is all sides save one. Jesus cuts these critics off. He says, leave her alone. Stop troubling her. Our Lord comes to the rescue of this woman, and he orders all these angry judges to be quiet, for their harsh judgments are poorly given. They're not judging correctly. For he says what this lady did was a good deed. Jesus vindicates and approbates the generosity of this woman. Hers was not destruction, but a good work, a beautiful work. Particularly, it was a beautiful work to or on Jesus. The direction of her good deed is of all importance. It's on Jesus. He further explains. He says, the poor you will always have with you. The poor aren't going anywhere, for poverty will never go away. Here we see our our Lord is a realist. He doesn't even pretend that there will be some utopic poverty-free zone this side of heaven. Next, he phrases our charity as free and non-compulsory act. He says, whenever you want, you can do good to them. This is significant as almsgiving was valued as a key meritorious work in the current day, especially at Passover. To, To earn merit in heaven, a good Jew gave alms at Passover. This then exposes the motives of those who are mad. They, their concern for the poor is actually not very altruistic. Rather, what they want is the bragging rights of donating 36 grand. They desire the plaque of an uber-righteousness, giver of $36,000. Charity to the needy for sure is an important part of our faith, but it's not a matter of law, and it isn't meritorious. Instead, it should should flow freely from us from a grateful and loving heart, not from compulsion. The main contrast, though, is one of timing. He says, you always have the poor, but you do not always have me. Jesus is going away, and his time with them is drawing near and to a close. And when a loved one is departing, it's very fitting to do some extra special things, to share some luxuries. And so this is what the woman did. She did what she had. 
No one can do everything. This woman was limited. But what she had, she gave freely to Jesus. And the fact that it was a $36,000 bottle just reveals the immensity and devotion of her Lord for Jesus. Indeed, when the moment calls for it, love has to be extravagant. There are moments when love cannot be cheap. And this woman has the foresight and faith to know that it's one of these moments. For as Jesus said, she was anointing the body of Jesus beforehand for burial. Our Lord now clarifies the woman's intention. This woman knew that Jesus was about to die, and she came to anoint him with perfume for his death. This also explains why she broke the jar. One of the funeral practices of the day was to pour oil on the corpse at the gravesite, and then you broke the jar and left its pieces in the grave. For a shattered jar symbolizes a death-broken life. Furthermore, the woman understands the all-important value of Jesus' death. If Jesus was soon to perish, he deserved the finest luxury for he was giving the greatest gift. Her love had to be the best, even 36 grand of perfume. But there's more. Note, remember, it's just two days before Passover. Preparations for the feast are in full swing. And what dies at Passover? The lamb. Who ministers at Passover? The priest. Thus, the imagery of priestly ordination of the woman pouring oil on his head is also consecrating Jesus for his service. The oil for this oil was also poured on sacrifices in the Old Testament and burned to the Lord. This woman anointed Jesus as the sacrifice in preparation for the Passover. Indeed, if you think about this, This is remarkable. Her faith is laser-focused on Jesus' Passover death. Her understanding is crystal clear about what this time means for Jesus. And her love for Jesus is fittingly extravagant and luxurious. The others are mad about alms to the poor. But she honors Jesus and his upcoming death, who will redeem sinners for everlasting life with his precious blood. They are ticked at their loss of getting merit, but she magnifies the merit of Jesus' death for sinners. Therefore, Jesus favors this woman with the highest vindication. Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The extravagant act of the woman will travel with the gospel throughout this world. Her faith and love towards Jesus' death will never be forgotten. But there's more. The word Jesus uses for memory comes also from the sacrificial system. It was called the memorial portion, which was oil poured on the sacrifice, and then it was offered up to be accepted by God. The memorial portion sealed your forgiveness and acceptance by God. It signified 
that you were declared right before God. Thus, this woman poured her faith out on the death of Jesus, and Jesus reckons her faith to her as righteousness. He honors her with the monument of justification by faith, resting alone in his Passover death. This is the best pillar of commemoration and honor ever. And yet, we never get the woman's name. Mark doesn't tell us her name. Jesus fails to utter it. He grants her the most ornate gravestone to be proclaimed with the gospel worldwide, and he leaves her name blank. How can this be? Isn't this a grand slight? Nicely done, lady, but your name's not that important. Is this woman just another great lady that patriarchal history has snubbed too minor to even remember her name? Well, no. Rather, it's her namelessness that elevates her faith. For faith is not about saying, look at me, know my name, don't forget my name. No, faith is about spotlighting Christ's death alone. Faith declares the name of Jesus. It proclaims the death of Christ as the only meritorious work for our salvation. And this is what makes this woman even greater. She announced with her sweet-smelling perfume the death of Christ as our true Passover lamb. Her luxurious gift proclaimed nothing but the cross of Christ as our ultimate Exodus salvation, and she refused to give her name. She said, it's not about me or my gift. It's about Jesus. By withholding her name, she boasts in nothing but Jesus and his death, which is why her story is the perfect accompaniment of the gospel. For she in no way distracts from the gospel, but her faith praises the death of Christ all the more. And in this way, she refines and strengthens our faith in Christ and his death. For as you know, the selfish eye often trips up our own faith. The temptation for us to contribute part of ourselves to our salvation is ever present with us. And yet with this woman, we are reminded that we boast not in ourselves. We brag in nothing but Christ and his death. We lose ourselves in Christ for his glory. Christ will remember our names, which is all we need. Therefore, praise the name of Jesus Christ, who died for justification and who shed his precious blood for all of your sins. And may we always remember the woman who poured her oil on the death of Christ, nameless but honored forever by our Savior. Amen. Let us pray.